0: Well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians and we're in chapter 11. So we have been going passage by passage throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you uh, are unfamiliar with kind of the way that we do things, that, that's how we do it: is We just go one passage at a time, just trying to look at it, let God's word bear on our lives. And that's just called expository preaching. And if you've ever had any question about whether or not we are committed to expository preaching, then the passage that we're going over today should convince you that we are. We're not just skipping some of the difficult passages. So if you would go to 1st Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bibles. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is in the New Testament. You'll see Acts, Romans, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians. If you are using one of the blue provided Bibles nearby on the ground, that's going to be on page 958. Page 958. And the big number there is going to be the chapter. The little numbers next to words are going to be the verses. And if you don't own a Bible, then just consider that blue one that's on the ground there, a gift from us to you. You're welcome to take that. So 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, starting in verse 2, we read Paul's words to the Corinthians. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short, or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gift to be able to gather here on this first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. And Lord, we are especially grateful that you have communicated who you are to us through your word. God, we do pray that as we look at this passage, that we would see clearly who you are. That we would also see clearly who we are we would recognize our need for you. Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage, that we as a church would be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are grateful for this great salvation that you have purchased for your people. We pray that we as a church be a beacon of light, proclaiming that good news and living in a unified way in light of it. Lord, we do pray for our community pray especially for the staff at St. Anne's Hospital. Lord, we are very grateful for the work that they do. And we pray that you would give them endurance. Pray that you would give them encouragement. Give them wisdom. Lord, we pray for uh, other churches in the area. I think of Linworth Baptist Church. Thank you for their faithfulness to proclaim your word. Thank you for their faithfulness to be gospel uh, gospel presence in the Columbus area. Lord, grant them wisdom as they continue to, to move forward in ministry. And we pray that they would continue to see great fruit. We're very grateful for the fruit that they have seen. And Lord, we also recognize that we are not uh, the only city or the only state or the only nation that has Christians. And so Lord, we pray for other Christians around the world. We think specifically of the persecuted Christians in North Korea. Lord, please give them endurance. Lord, have them live faithfully even in the light of great danger. Lord, we pray that you would tear down the wicked regime that is in North Korea. And that you would bring repentance and faith to that nation. Lord, help me speak clearly as we look at this passage, and we pray that ultimately uh, that not myself or citizens or anybody here would be magnified, but Christ would be magnified and would be lifted up. We pray this in his name, amen. So after just a general reading, I'm sure everybody um, knows what's going on and we don't need to discuss too much, but what a fun passage, but with that said... Uh, to kick us off, just to give you a little bit of background on myself, I, I, grew, or I, I lived in Mount Vernon, Ohio, grew up there, lived there for about 15 years, and uh, moved there in 2001. And from 2001 to 2015, I began to become familiar with Mount Vernon, Ohio. It's about 35, 40 minutes north, if you ever want to go up there, it's a, it's a lovely town. We still visit often. But one of the, the main roads is called Coshocton Avenue. And that's where all the shops are, that's where the the big retail stores are. That's kind of the the main strip, kind of like State Street here in Westerville. But a few years ago, I saw a video of Mount Vernon in in the 90s, prior to me ever moving there. And it was somebody driving down their car and they were just videotaping, and they were videotaping Cushocton Avenue. Now it was still Cushocton Avenue, but a lot of the landmarks that I'd grown familiar with weren't there. Walmart wasn't there. Dollar Tree wasn't there. Big Lots, kind of get a feel for the, the town, the kind of shopping we do. <laughs> but all, all, these, all these places that I'd, I'd grown familiar with weren't there. I was still very aware that this is, this is still Mount Vernon. It's still Coshocton Avenue. But it looked different. And we, like I said, we still visit fairly often. And, and the roads that we grew up knowing and becoming familiar with, they're still there. But there are still new buildings, new landmarks popping up, ones that we weren't initially familiar with. But it's still, even today, just as much Mount Vernon as it was when I lived there, and it's just as much Mount Vernon as it was in the 90s before I recognized it. And those roads are still just as much the same roads. And this passage, as we're looking at it, can feel distant. It can feel like it doesn't have any relevance or application to us today, but it does. I think if we take some time to consider it and to examine it, We'll see that it is relevant and that it is applicable just as much to us today as it was to the Corinthians when Paul was writing this to them. Some of the landmarks and some of the cultural expressions may look different in our context, but it's still the same road, still the same principle, so to speak. And so as we look at this passage, the the main point that Paul is trying to get across to these Corinthians is this, that God's design... For gender, headship, and submission, all glorifies God. And therefore, should be clearly displayed when the church gathers to worship God. So I'll say that one more time. God's design for gender, headship, and submission glorifies God. And therefore, should be clearly displayed when the church gathers to worship God. And so we've shared some of the context of uh, the book of Corinthians and some of the things that were going on then. I'll try to go pretty quick here. But Paul is essentially writing to a church that is still a baby. He came, proclaimed the gospel to them, and they received the gospel and a church was birthed. And then he received some reports from Chloe's people. He also got a letter back from the Corinthians, and he recognized that there's some issues going on here. And so he's addressing these various problems throughout the book, of first corinthians and the these problems he's addressing because he loves these people the problems were, were threatening to tear the church apart and the whole theme of first corinthians is that that church would be unified in the lord jesus christ and so every time we look at a passage here in first corinthians we're reminded that 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 call to, to be unified in the lord is the call to us today that we should be unified in the lord jesus christ And so the problem that is being addressed in today's passage is that gender distinctions, when the church would gather, were being blurred. And as gender distinctions were being blurred, clear God-ordained authority and submission structures were also being blurred. And so therefore, God's glory was being blurred and diminished. One commentary put it this way. said, most likely, some Corinthians wanted to develop Paul's teaching that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. And they wanted to do that in such a way that distinctions between men and women would have actually been avoided in worship. And Paul is addressing that issue. He says, no, the distinctions are good. It glorifies God. And so to address this issue, Paul lays out his argument, and we've divided it in four sections. Your notes page is blank, but the four points that I'm going to be laying before you are these. In verses 2 through 3, we see a delivered tradition. In verses 4 through 12, we see a contested tradition. Verses 13 through 15, we see a natural tradition. And then in the final verse, verse 16, we see the church's tradition. So four points, a delivered tradition, a contested tradition, a natural tradition, and then the church's tradition. So let's look at that first one. Look at verse 2 as we see a delivered tradition, Paul says, now I commend you, he's writing to the Corinthians, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So he's he's getting ready to critique them. And he does something that we all do. You want to give a little bit of praise before I I lay into you. So let me take one verse and I'll take the next 14, 15 verses to just lay into you. But he takes one verse and says, hey, good job here. You care about the traditions I delivered to you. You're doing a good job in that. And, and just, to, just to clarify, Paul wasn't creating a tradition. As an apostle, he didn't have authority to do that. They have authority to say whether or not something is in line with God's word. That say, hey, do this practice because it's a faithful expression of God's word, God's law. But he doesn't have the authority to create a, a new law or, or to create a tradition. And so he is encouraging them that, hey, you, you care about the traditions I have put before you. You care about god's law that i've been sharing with you and specifically he's referring here to the seventh commandment where it talks about you shall not commit adultery and jesus lays out in the new testament that's any sexual sin and so when paul is talking about this he's he's tying it back to that we see the seventh commandment uh even fleshed out in deuteronomy 22 verse 5 where we read a woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So even in Deuteronomy, that seventh commandment was being fleshed out, saying, hey, gender distinctions are good. Don't don't cause any kind of blurred uh, distinctions here. Don't blur those. They're, They're good. And so Paul is getting ready to tell them that their clothing and their actions were violating God's law. And now he is getting ready to help them understand it. So he compliments them, hey, good job, trying to maintain the traditions. There's an area in which I want you to have a better understanding with. So look at verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now this verse drives everything else. Everything else in this passage flows from verse 3. That's what he wants them to understand. And what he's trying to get them to understand are these things, gender, headship, and submission. Now, that word for head, in the Greek, kafale, means authority. And so he's, he's saying that, that the head directs the body. Your arms and legs, they don't move unless your head tells them to move. We pray for heads of government, heads of state, because what they do directs the rest of the nation. And so when he says that a wife is the, uh, excuse me, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of a a man is Christ, what we see here is Paul establishing some headship principles. Now if you're not using ESV, you'll see that it says woman and man rather than wife and husband. Now just to just to bring you into some of the translation stuff, there is no Greek word for husband or wife. It's the same word for adult male as it is for husband, and it's the same word for adult female as it is for wife. If you are using an ESV or using another translation, they might even have that in a footnote, where the word aner means adult, male, or husband, and the word gune means adult, female, or wife. Now, context is going to drive that, whether it's translated as husband or man, whether it's translated as wife or woman. We see see this same principle used in Ephesians 5, where uh, where Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's talking about marriage. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 22 and 23, It says, wives, submit to your own husbands, on air, as to the Lord. For the husband, on air, is the head of the wife, Gune, even as Christ is the head of the church. So context is going to drive, whether it's translated as husband or man, whether it's translated as wife or woman. And so I think that this context would imply that it is referring to husband and wife. But if you see a difference there, then that's the reason, just so you're aware. Now the order of these relationships that Paul lays out is interesting. He says, man, Christ, wife, husband, Christ, God. You would think that it would be clearer if he would have just said it this way. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of husbands. Husbands is the head of his wife. That doesn't make it nice, clear, organizationally. God, Christ, men, women, just very, very clear. But he doesn't do that. Why? The point that he's trying to make in the way that he's uh, organizing that thought, is about gender within the framework of headship and submission. This is why he begins by saying the head of every man, and then goes to the head of every woman. He's trying to, to bring those distinctions. God made them male and female, and so he says, okay, let's talk to the men, the head of every man, and then he says, let's talk to them, the head of every woman, and so he, he's trying to lay that out. And so men, your head or authority, is Christ. He says it right there in the text. So, a question for the men in the room here is Are you living that way? Are you bringing everything under the authority of Christ? Is there anything that you're withholding? So, I'll give, them, I'll give them 99%, but this one thing over here, not ready. Is there anything that you're withholding from submitting to Christ's good authority? Your motto, if you're married to your wife, if you have kids, to your wife and children, should be follow me as I follow Christ. I'm submitting everything to Christ, and as, as, the, as the passage here states, I'm to lead you, and so therefore follow me as I follow Christ. That should be your motto. Women, your head is your husband. Now, I want to reiterate something that we've already covered in the past, just because of the cultural climate that we live in, that even though your husband is your head, the, the, your headship, your the authority, that doesn't mean that if your husband tells you to go somewhere other than following Christ, that you should follow that. So, follow your husband insofar as he follows Christ. If he leads you, tries to lead you away from Christ, then you have an obligation to continue to follow Christ and then pray fervently for your husband to repent and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, to show, Paul recognizes that there's there's headship authority here, and to show that headship and submission to authority is a good thing, Paul then brings Christ into it. So he says, say, hey, men have addressed you who your head is, Christ, women have addressed you, your head, your husband. He says, Look, this is a good thing. Don't think this is a, a bad thing. Christ, his head, is God. You see that in, in verse 3 there. The head of Christ is God. Now that does not mean, just to clarify, that Christ isn't God. It also does not imply that the second person of the Trinity is in any way inferior to the Father. But it does mean that Christ in his human nature, received a human will, and he has submitted that perfectly to the plan of God, to the plan of the Father. does not indicate inferiority. God is glorified in faithful headship, and God is glorified in faithful submission. We see this in the life of Christ. Submission does not mean inferiority. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, lest there be any misunderstanding... The headship of man over woman, as God intended from all creation, no more diminishes the worth of a woman than God's headship over Christ could ever make Christ inferior to the Father. And so Paul's establishing the principle that gender distinctions, that headship and submission to good authority are all good and all glorify God. God. And he does this, this is where we've got to look really closely at the text here. Okay? I want you to see this. He does this by referencing three present and active covenants. Okay? Look, look there at verse 3. We see the head of every man is Christ. He's referring to the new covenant. Christ's headship. And when you become a Christian, you're now submitting everything to Christ. We call him Lord and Savior. He saves us from our sin, and we're also submitting to his lordship, his authority in our lives. And then he says, the head of every wife is her husband. And so now we see a marriage covenant. We see man's headship within that covenant. Marriage reflects the gospel, as we see in Ephesians 5. I read a portion of that, but you can see that very clearly as you read through Ephesians 5, that it reflects Christ in the church. That the church joyfully submits to Christ's loving authority and headship. And then Christ delegates authority to his church. He gives them keys of the kingdom. He gives them the authority to bind and loose, as we read in Matthew 16 and 18. We see this also, that marriage not only reflects the gospel, it also reflects creation. So God created Adam and then delegated authority to him, named the animals. And as he's naming the animals, he recognizes that there's no helper suitable for him. And so then God creates Eve, and then Adam receives Eve, and then he takes that Authority that he's received from God, and he delegates some of it to Eve. And she helps him in the, in the mandate, the creation mandate that God has given to his people. And then marriage is informed by that framework. So we see the new covenant, the head of every man is Christ. We see the marriage covenant, the head of every uh, woman is her husband. And then we see this other covenant that may be less popular, but follow me here. It's the covenant of redemption. Now this covenant shows that God's, Headship over Christ is active in Christ's life, and, and goes even before that, before the foundation of the world. So, before the foundation of the world, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, agreed to send the second person of the Trinity, the Son, into Earth to take on human flesh and a human nature, and then to submit that human flesh and nature to God's uh, law and God's will perfectly, so that all those who are in Him can then be seen as perfect. So, the sec- it's the second person of the Trinity who has agreed to do this. There's a a covenant there. And so all of this, in verse 3, informs the rest of the passage. And so we see a delivered tradition where Paul has delivered this and he's trying to unpack it more by talking about uh, the various headship and and submission relationships that are there. But now we see a contested tradition. So what Paul has delivered is being contested in Corinth. So this is now where we get into the nitty gritty. Okay, so we see things about head coverings, we see shaving of the head, glory, symbol of authority, angels. We'll cover all of that. And we're not going to cover all of that exhaustively, all right? Otherwise, we'll be here a very long time. So if you have any additional questions, feel free to, to ask afterward. But I'll do my best to unpack what feels necessary. So look at verse 4: <clears throat> verse 4 and 5. We see men and women praying and prophesying. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies, with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So men and women were praying and prophesying in a way that blurred the God-given gender distinctions in headship and submission. Now, this context is when the church gathered on the Lord's Day, first day of the week. So that's that's when this is happening. We see this later in chapter 11 when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. He makes it clear that this is happening during uh, the Lord's Day gathering, when the church gathered on the first day of the week. And he's, he's doing a play on words here. <clears throat> so he, he talks about head and then head. And so he, when he says the head, in one sense he's using the authoritative head, and in another sense he's using the physical head. So if we, if we l- reread here verses 4 through 5, <clears throat> We'll see in verses, you see in verses three and four, he's using the authoritative head. And then there's an overlap in verse four, where you see authoritative head and physical head. And then the rest of the passage, he's talking about physical head. So let's reread verses four and five with those things in mind. Every man who prays or prophesies with his physical head, I'm adding that in just for clarification, with his physical head uncovered, dishonors his authoritative head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her authoritative head, since it is the same as if her physical head were shaven. So, if women, some of you being perceptive here, if women were praying and prophesying in front of everyone at the church, how does that square with 1 Corinthians 14? Just a few chapters later, Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 14, if you flip over there. Verses 34 through 35. We read, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. There's anything they desire to learn with the master husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So again, Paul is, is fleshing out the law, which he's doing here as well. But And just to clarify, he's referring to, to leading in the church service. He's not saying that women can't open their mouths and sing, can't, can't do responsive readings, can't talk after. The, that's not what he's saying at. He's saying from the front, women leading, he said, they, they are to be, to be silent. The men are to lead. That's what God's design. And so how does women praying and prophesying in chapter 11 fit with what Paul says in chapter 14, where he says the women should be silent? Well, here's what we know. This is important to know. But the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. And Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not going to contradict himself. Especially in the same letter, especially within the matter of just a few, or a few chapters. So Paul's not contradicting himself. The Holy Spirit is not contradicting himself. And so that leaves us with three options. <clears throat> and commentators have, have laid these three out. So the first is that the praying and prophesying here is referring to uh, something different from the speaking he refers to in chapter 14. Different type of praying and prophesying. I don't think that's convincing. The second option is that it's a different context, referring to women's daily lives throughout the week, where they're proclaiming God's truth to other people as they go about the week, and they're praying for them as they go about the week. Not what is happening when the church gathers. I'm not convinced by that one either. I think chapter 11 makes it clear that this is happening in the context of the worship gathering and so the third option this is the the camp that i find myself in is that he's addressing one issue at a time and so right now he's addressing the blurred distinctions in the worship gathering and then in chapter 14 he addresses more orderly worship how we should be going about worship but again what do we know we need to come back to that that the holy spirit never contradicts himself chapter 11 is true and chapter 14 is true We can trust that the Bible is consistent. We may need to put in some work to understand it. However, God will never contradict himself. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. So, what's happening here then? Look at verse 6. If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So to remove her covering, which is what was happening in this context, in the worship gathering, would have communicated a few things, maybe potentially more, but here are the, the three common answers as to what removing her head covering would have communicated. First, which we've talked about and will continue to talk about, is that it shows a blurring of the genders. She doesn't want to, to bring on the, the femininity, she wants to be able to seen, be seen just as equally as anyone else there, that there's no distinction between male, male and female, and she's trying to, to to put, live that out. And, and that has that, I think that has good merit, because back in that day, there was no J C Penney or TJ Maxx to go get the kind of clothing that you liked. Everyone wore robes, and the primary way to distinguish between a male and a female was the head covering. The second option, or not option, but the second thing that it could communicate was that she was no longer under her husband's headship. That she was an independent woman. I think this has some merit as well. If you look at verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So Paul's addressing this idea of of men and women being independent from each other. And he, he says, no, you're not independent. You are necessary for one another. And there are relationship dynamics that we need to uphold because God has created them. And then the third one, is that it could have communicated an association with temple prostitution. Now, prostitutes would have advertised themselves by removing their head covering, or removing their veil, so that their customers could see what they're paying for. Now, each of those are options, but here's what Paul is getting at. He is saying that she should cover her head for the sake of communicating clear gender distinctions, which glorifies God, for the sake of communicating modesty that she wouldn't be associated with any type of uh, cult prostitution, then also that she would communicate glad submission to her husband in the way that Christ gladly submitted to the Father. And so just as important as the woman covering her head, we read in verse 7 that men should not cover their head. Now why? Again, we, we see it's to maintain those gender distinctions, but it also glorifies God. So we see in, in verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. And So to blur his maleness, we need to blur God's glory. And then we read that woman is the glory of man. Notice that it's not the image of man. She's just as much in the image of God as the man is, but she's the, the glory of man because she was made out of man. One commentator put it this way. He said, because Paul argues from creation, which you see there, verses 8 and 9, the principle that husbands and wives have different roles transcends culture. So this wasn't just a Corinthian issue. This is an issue for us today as well. See that man was made first and received authority from God. He follows God's lead. Then woman was made from man and for man to help him. So she follows his lead insofar as he follows Christ. Which is why in verse 10 there should be a symbol of authority on her head. And then we read, because of the angels. What in the world do the angels have to do with this? That has been a question that many have asked for a long time. Now I will submit to you what I think this is saying. Uh, But I would encourage you to check out some good commentaries because there's various options. I think this one is the most convincing. I'm getting ready to share with you. For sake of time, I'm not going to share all the others. But here's what I believe the angels have to do with this. In Job 38, we see in verse 4 and in verse 7 that the angels were present at creation, when God created. And that now the angels are on looking and observing our worship gatherings. When we come together, the angels are, are looking on. Consider Ephesians 3, verse 10, where we read, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the church that God's wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And and we even acknowledge the angels every week. You may not have realized that, but every week, when we close with the doxology, we're acknowledging the angels, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly hosts. We're acknowledging the angels. They're looking on. We're telling praise God. Now, angels were present at creation. They look onto our gatherings. But then here's something else that we know about the angels. Is that some of the angels rebelled against God's authority. If you look at Jude, verse 6. We read, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there were some angels who did not stay in their position of authority. They were not satisfied with God's good authority. They they left it. And now there's a parallel between what they did and what What was happening in Corinth with some of the Corinthian women removing their head coverings and coming out from under the headship that God has placed over them. And so now when the angels observe our gatherings and when they see clear gender distinctions and godly authority and godly submission on display clearly, then they are reminded that their place under God's authority is a good thing. They are present at creation. Some of them rebelled. They look onto our gathering and when they see us having clear gender distinctions and seeing us rejoice in godly authority and godly submission, they are reminded that's a good thing. But now, to ensure that we don't develop an unhealthy view of men and women, Paul then says this in verse 11. He says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. So hey, Husbands, you've been given this authority, but don't think that you're superior. Women, you're called to submit to your godly husband, but don't think that you're inferior. He says you're both dependent on one another. The first woman came out of man, but then every man after that comes from woman. He says you're independent, or you're, you're dependent. You're not independent. You are dependent on one another, and both of you are dependent upon God from whom all things come. So by suppressing God's good design for male and female in the church gathering, as the Corinthians were doing, they actually suppressed God's glory. And so church, when we gather, God's glory should be magnified, not suppressed. And believe it or not, now this may sound strange, but believe it or not, our clothing affects that. And so men... No, this is revolutionary, but men. Dress like men. Don't blur the line. Don't be the the character in Aerosmith's song, dude looks like a lady. All right? I don't need to sing it. Don't blur the line. Exercise Christ-like headship with your wives. Don't be domineering. Be loving, sacrificial, and selfless. Rejoice that God has given you a wife that wants to follow a godly husband. That is a good thing. That is a gift from God to you. Don't be another example of abusive authority. Women, dress like women. Don't blur the line. And exercise godly submission. Rejoice that God has given you a husband that wants to lead you to follow Christ. And when he fails at that, help him. Help him to do that. And if you're in the room and you've been hurt by abusive authority in the past, I am sorry. That happens too often. We hear too many stories about that. And I will assure you that God is not pleased by it. But the answer is not to reject all authority. God has established Christ-like authority for all of us. And it's for our good. So we see a delivered tradition. We see that tradition contested in Corinth. And now in verses 13 through 15, we see a natural tradition. So even though Corinth was bucking against this, this tradition, Paul points out that, hey, even nature affirms this. You guys are doing something strange, but even nature affirms what I've been trying to deliver to you, what I want you to understand. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her Head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? So look, even if cultures blur the line, nature does not blur the line. Nature affirms what Paul is saying, and one evidence of that that Paul lays out is hair. Just generally speaking, it's easier for wives or excuse me, it's easier for women to to grow long hair, and we know that's because of estrogen. But God has designed you. Generally speaking, women in every culture are going to have longer hair on average than men. And it just goes to show we will never be able to suppress God's glory and God's design. You can try like a basketball holding it underwater, you can try. But as soon as you let go, that basketball is going to fly right back up out of the water. God's design is always there and we're not going to be able to suppress it. Then verse 15 So this is another, I mean, every, I was talking with somebody earlier in the week, and they said the difficult thing about this passage is that every point in the passage, there's like 15 different options. And so whenever we approach a a text like this, we need to approach it humbly, we need to approach it with grace, especially when someone may disagree with us. However, I'll give you a few options here, and I'll let you know which one I lean toward. So we read that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. What does that mean? Well, option one is that long hair is sufficient to distinguish gender. Now, the problem with that is verse six. Okay, you can look there. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Well, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So, he's talking about cutting her long hair And saying that, look, if she's not going to cover her head, then she should cut her long hair. So it seems that long hair isn't sufficient. She should cover her head. Option two is that long hair is used to tie up in a bun, so to speak, uh, to distinguish genders. They take the long hair, they tie it up in a bun as their covering. The problem with that is that the Greek word used there means covering or veil. So it seems that it's not referring to her hair being put up in a bun. It refers to some type of physical covering. Then option three which is one I'm more inclined to, is that her long hair is given to her for a covering, to distinguish gender. So again, in Corinth, the way to distinguish gender was whether or not there was a covering. And so he's saying she, her hair is given to her for a covering, not necessarily as a covering. Some translations will do that, but I think it's the wrong translation. I think it's for, in the same way that maybe you've been given a car for driving. So it's You've been given something for this purpose. And so I think what Paul is getting at is that her long hair is given to her for a a physical covering. One commentator helps us understand that Paul's point is that men should look like men in that culture, and women should look like women, rather than seeking to deny or disparage the God-given differences between the sexes. That's what Paul is getting at. And so now I know we're short on time, so let's look at the fourth one, the church's tradition. Verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So look, Paul is pointing out that all churches in every place recognized these things. The goodness of manhood and womanhood, the goodness of God-ordained authority, and the goodness of godly submission. And it was evident in their church, in the way that they worshipped. God-ordained gender was recognized in nature... And it was recognized in all the churches in every place. And it wasn't a point of contention. As a church, may it not be a point of contention here. Whatever camp you're in, whether to establish those gender distinctions you believe you should wear a head covering, women, or whether you don't think you should, the point is that there should be clear distinctions. And that our clothing and our actions should provide clarity and not confusion. So may we, as a church, be a beacon of clarity in a culture that is just overrun with confusion on the topic of gender. May us be a place where it is clearly displayed that there is goodness in being a man, and there is goodness in being a woman. God's design for gender, for headship, and for submission glorifies God. Therefore, it should be clearly displayed when the church gathers to worship God. Gender is good. Headship and authority, godly headship and authority is good. Godly submission is good. And God is glorified when we uphold all of these. Consider Christ. If the Son had not agreed to take on flesh and to submit that flesh perfectly to God's will, then we would still be lost in our sin. We have the opportunity to to have our sin removed and to be given his perfect righteousness because he agreed to submit. And then when we place our faith in what he has done, we now submit to him and say, I'm not going my own way. I am following Christ as my Lord. I'm entrusting myself entirely to him as my Savior, but he is also my Lord. He is my authority. I gladly submit to him. And then, when that happens, You receive his perfect righteousness. And he takes and pays for your sin, past, present, and future. It's a wonderful thing. Praise God for godly authority. Praise God for godly submission. Praise God for the distinctions. With male and female, praise God for the distinctions within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a good and glorious thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your design. Thank you for the goodness of gender. Thank you for the goodness of authority, headship. Thank you for the goodness of submission. Lord, help us seek to honor you in all three of these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.